Welcome to Healthcare Upside Down with your host, Dr. Nick Vanterhaven, and brought to you by ECG Management Consultants. You can learn more about the show on the program's page at healthcarenowradio.com or on our blog at ecgmc.com hud. The U.S. spends more on healthcare per capita than any other country on the planet. So why don't we have superior outcomes? Why haven't the principles of capitalism prevailed? And why do American consumers have so much trouble accessing and paying for healthcare? Each week, Healthcare Upside Down will dive into these and other issues with ECG principal, Dr. Nick, and guest panelists as they discuss the upsides and downsides of healthcare in the U.S. and how to make the system work for everyone. And we end with your better pill to swallow, the conclusion to today's episode with insights on challenges and changes that improve healthcare. Now here's your host, Dr. Nick. In our current world, you can track your package delivery to the doorstep. We know when it gets shipped, we get routing updates, we get notification when it arrives at the doorstep. I can get real-time information on wait times and security lines at the local airport. But how many beds are available locally? This information has routinely been unavailable. Years ago, as a junior doctor, one of my least favorite tasks was finding a bed for the patient. I was admitting from the emergency department under our care. The system was simplistic. We as a team or a service that delivered a specific specialty of care were linked to one or more specific wards in the hospital. We had influence over those beds, but not absolute control. In fact, even now, I'm not sure who had the ultimate authority but I suspect it rested in the administrative wing of the hospital and not with clinicians. But that system broke down quickly. Even with the best intentions, we would not have enough beds to admit into the beds allocated to our group. They were already full of routine patients we cared for, those awaiting treatment, undergoing diagnosis or recovering before discharge. If it was a busy day and night in the emergency department, and on Friday and Saturday, it often was, Finding a bed meant calling around all the wards to see if there were any beds available. There was a list, handwritten on a whiteboard in the emergency department, but it was never up to date, and you came to know the ebbs and flows of patients in various departments. You learned to check in on the orthopaedic ward on a Friday night, as they often had several discharges late Friday, and the beds were freed up and became available. The notion that years later we are struggling with the same problem and little has changed is frustrating at best. We might have a slightly better sense of beds in the facility with our digital tracking of admissions and room readiness in the electronic medical record, but what if your hospital is full? As we found to be the case across the country and the world with overwhelming admissions linked to the pandemic. We can load balance exabytes of data effectively on the World Wide Web load balancing traffic to keep everything running smoothly, but can't tell if there is one bed or 20 available in the hospital next door easily. Join me on the Healthcare Upside Down show as I talk with Dr. Omar Latif, the president and CEO of Rush University Medical Center, where he was previously the chief medical officer. Hi, Omar. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me, Dr. Nick. So, Rush has done some uh, interesting work around uh, data analytics, transparency in healthcare. Tell us a little bit about what you managed to do um, 
with all of that information around the pandemic, which has really sort of exposed many of the challenges. But I think you either were set up to deal with this ahead of time or you had a very responsive organization that allowed you to pivot effectively to deal with um, the lack of data. Yeah, I think it's an interesting question. I think the pandemic highlighted, or actually a better way to say it, put a spotlight on the need to share data, share information, and share knowledge about resources. And as a nation, the United States of America has a lot of silos. Hospitals compete against one another. And when you do that, um, you unfortunately can't share information or share learnings across from one hospital to another. That's something that we use our medical literature to try to fill the gaps in. However, we don't even know what hospital has an open bed in a crisis relative to a hospital down the street, relative to a hospital 20 miles away. And so what I, what we, when the pandemic broke, one of the challenges that we recognized here at Rush University Medical Center and here in the city of Chicago was, is there a better way to load balance patients that were coming into the city so that we can put the right patient with the right facility to offer the best care that they needed so that there weren't patients that didn't need high level care using a high level bed and there weren't patients waiting in a lobby to get a high level bed when they were at risk of dying. So the way to close that gap was about opening the data transparency. And what I mean by data transparency is have every hospital function together, not as siloed individuals competing against one another, share their beds, their resources, their flow to a central area. That central area could then delegate where patients would go. It's a very logical idea that says, all right, this hospital is four open beds, this hospital is 26. The next one should go here, then one should go here. They are running out of equipment, so we should put people here. That centralization required inputting it, accurate information into a central repository where there was trust that that information would not be misused, and then exporting that into usable resources for society. And the city of Chicago partnered with the Chicago Department of Public Health to build that infrastructure so that in real time, we knew where to put people. That allowed us functionally to actually save lives. So you, you bring up a number of points here. And, uh, you know, given that you were able to set that up, was it critical that the uh, city of Chicago was part of this to induce the trust component? Because one of the things that strikes me about this is, I, I mean, this almost feels like we should have been doing this for years. It's, it's an essential part of delivering a coordinated set of services, yet competitive aspects of healthcare have precluded the open and honest sharing of data. Some of it has been technical, but I think that's the smaller piece of it. What, what allowed for that to occur so that you could start to deliver that information effectively? I really uh, feel a lot of emotions when a person asks a question like that, because if you think about how we have resources in the greatest healthcare nation in the world um, and what we can do in terms of saving lives, we have a problem in connecting those resources to the people that need them. That is not new. There is no debate around that. There is an inequity that, that lives in healthcare and the driver Part of the driver, that's a, that's a multifaceted problem, but part of the driver of that inequity is a failure of institutions to share information with one another. In a crisis, that pressure is removed. 
And healthcare subsidiary, like like the state healthcare agencies, have always spon- sponsored techniques to share data from one institution to another. So, but that's self-reporting. So people sit there and say, "All right, this is what we have going on. This is a big picture." And and large healthcare organizations, which are heavily underfunded, like the state healthcare agencies, are he- heavily underfunded, are doing the best they can with limited resources, but trying to connect those dots between different institutions. What the pandemic created was an immediate necessity to share that information. So it became the driver, the impetus for change. It also made it hard for hospitals to do exactly what you just said, which is not share information because of lack of trust. And the reality is we knew that we needed to share information. And in doing so, then that was going to drive better outcomes and by putting the right patient in the right place. So the honest answer to your question is, the challenge of COVID, the overwhelming numbers motivated healthcare institutions to see beyond their silos to say, let's be part of a greater system. State healthcare agencies have always wanted to do that, lacked a lot of the resources and the technology to do it. So what we're seeing in telehealth as an example and the delivery of that, and you know, that's an area that I, I've, I've seen repeatedly for 20 years, We've had the technology, we've been doing it. NASA's been doing telehealth for for even longer than that. The capability has been there. We pushed over and said, now it's available. We removed the regulatory infrastructure that prevented it. But now I'm seeing rollback. Are are you seeing the same rollback? Are you going to see this persist? Or are we just going to return to business as usual? Well, I think that there's never going to be a return to business as usual for healthcare post-pandemic in the United States of America. The cost of the pandemic is far more than the economic cost. And the economic cost was profound. There are people in this country that believe hospitals made made a killing during the pandemic. I could verify that we did not. We were devastated financially by the pandemic. But the other cost was emotional. Um, we took a healthcare uh, group of heroes and asked them to do incredible work. And when it was said and done, because we we're out of resources, many of those healthcare workers across this entire country got pay cuts. And the reason I, I bring that up in answer to telehealth is it's all related. We have an antiquated system of healthcare provide, of providing healthcare in this country, largely in part for all the regulations that exist. And largely in part because of all the concerns around, you know, what happens if you, if you don't give the right information of getting sued, of getting in trouble. And, and there's so many external challenges. The comfort, the, the, Healthcare in many ways is like riding in a uh, cruise ship down a river. Very hard to change and not agile in this country. And when you think about the answer to your question is why are we going back from telehealth away to it? A lot of it is that people don't believe. So one, as much as patients love the digital entry into healthcare is a critical component, telehealth, they still want to be touched. They still want to see their doctor and their doctor should still look at them. There are conversations that are often best to have in person. So that doesn't mean that one obfuscates a need for the other. We simply need to know when to offer telehealth and when to have an in-person visit. You don't tell somebody they have stage four cancer on a telehealth visit. You tell them that in a private room, sitting down, looking eye to eye with somebody. So I would say that the, the pushback has more to do with the fear of compensation and the infrastructure that has to be built to maintain it. And the cost of that infrastructure, cybersecurity, all the external pressures that are on an organization, as well as this was the way that we know how to practice medicine. So let's let's go back to it. Now, 
those institutions that are agile and a and can afford to transition to a digital and more modern healthcare providing approach will win in the long term. But doing that now comes at the cost of your daily reimbursements and your ability to keep your lights on. I, and you know, part of that is the accessibility that that created, that the digital front door, as the term's being coined, that you know, opened things up. But you know, I, I, I like your analogy of the cruise ship in the canal. I'm reminded of the one that got stuck in the Panama Canal. Feel a little bit like healthcare is perhaps a bit stuck, and we need you know some lifting of everything to push us forward to this new destination that opens things up and allows for a, a blended delivery of care that it's immaterial which way you access it, but people get compensated for the, the, the medicine and the care that they provide, no matter how it's cared. How do we get there? How do we lift everything up to push us forward? I wish I had the right answer to that question, uh, Dr. Nick, because I, I live in a world where people who've laid out an incredible amount of effort for the last couple of years and risked their own sort of welfare to fight a pandemic instead of being treated like heroes are exhausted and burning out at an unprecedented level. If we don't fundamentally change the way we provide care, then we're not doing good for providers and we're not doing good for patients. So opening up access is the most obvious thing that as a country we have to do. Right now in America, as much as 20 cents of our GDP goes into healthcare, and what, five cents of that goes to the providers, and 15 cents goes outside into some part of the world that I don't necessarily have a great insight or vision into. The, the reality is, how do you shake that up so that the net amount we spend is less than 20 cents out of every dollar, and we offer better access to care, and we offer better care? Those challenges are are larger than one healthcare system because those challenges are philosophical. Is this what we're going to do? Are we going to make healthcare part of capitalism? Or are we going to make healthcare a right? And those are the questions that as a country we've grappled with because we're straddling the fence. It's capitalistic on one end, but you're not, but you have to take care of every single person, whether or not they can pay or not. I'm not arguing that one approach is better than the other. I'm simply saying they're a little bit opposed like you can't have a, a competitive capitalistic environment and then mandate care at the same time because you can't you can't run a business like that. So what has to happen is we have to decide as a nation what is our expectation from the healthcare world and then provide those resources to achieve that vision. And that's what we don't have. We don't have a unified vision as a nation of what healthcare should be. We have a lot of strong and smart ideas around how to do it. But that transition is challenging. And so your question is, how do we get there? The reality is it starts with agreeing what our true north is, saying as a country, this is our expectation for healthcare, and then providing the resources to do it. If that's not done, then the only way to maintain a successful healthcare infrastructure right now and in industry right now is by living within the current paradigm of healthcare and how it's reimbursed. It's hard to be... Uh, innovative if innovation comes at a cost of your daily business, unless you have incredible amounts of resources. I, and, you know, great 
point around this, you know, direction or North Star. We've struggled with that. We see other examples. I think this, you know, spectrum, people often, you know, look to my origin system, the UK, the NHS, which, you know, is called free. It's not free. No healthcare is free. So ultimately we have to pay for it. We've got to find a system. We have our existing baggage. But part of that baggage is all of these people, as you rightly point out, that other 15 cents that are essentially employed, um, focused on this industry, and the, the overlay that takes place, and I think adds to the burnout. Let's not you know, confuse other issues. You know, the clinical burnout of all of the exposure with pandemic and you know, the excess workload really drove it. But it's the other things that are driving it that we all shoot to this lowest common denominator of assuming that everybody is trying to fraudulently extract money from the system. And that's why we end up having to document and click through and do all of these things. Can we fix that? Is there a potential to essentially expose a more normalized activity so that clinicians can spend the time doing what they plan to do? but are now pulled away doing all of this administrivia. I think we have to. I think relieving that administrative burden is a necessity for the future of healthcare. I, you know, I've never, so nurses are incredible in, the, in, in what they do and in the way they stay at the bedside and do work. I've never met a nurse that was frustrated by helping somebody at the bedside. I've met many, many nurses that are really upset about the amount of documentation they have to do when they come out of the bedside because it keeps them from going back in the bedside and making someone feel better. So I'm not denying that it's important to make sure we know who has a restraint on and who doesn't. I am challenging the concept of how often it has to be documented and how many people have to double check the documentation and where does that documentation have to exist to get credit and in what program and in what folder and if it's not in what folder what can happen because what it effectively does while the goals and the metrics well while the goals are meaningful the question we have to ask ourselves are the metrics we're using in healthcare getting us to the goals that we want to get to or are the metrics creating an undue burden that's not actually improving our care so the honest answer to that question is we have to relieve the administrative burden on all providers in healthcare in a way that doesn't challenge safety, which can absolutely be done. So uh, let's separate a couple of things in there because for me, documentation started out, certainly in my experience as a clinician, as transfer of knowledge between the clinical team. And to me, it's been hijacked for alternative purposes for proving that you've achieved or done something from a billing perspective, we have to return to that origin of transfer of knowledge for safety, as you rightly point out. But we've essentially pushed everybody down to check boxes and, and determine and repost all of this information. Is that a regulatory issue? Is, yes. Is, it's a way this structure. So the way healthcare institutions get paid is based on its documentation. The way healthcare institutions get rated in terms of how good they are has more to do with their documentation than their actual care. So there have been a tremendous number of studies that have been published nationally in this country that show that with documentation improvement, you could have a 50% improvement in a safety score. That is not okay. 
Because the reason it's not okay is I don't want to train the next generation of healthcare providers to be great documenters. I want to train the next generation of doctors to be great doctors, the next generation of nurses to be great nurses. We need a better system to capture and reward and, and, and reward financially those people that are providing the care. This is not a complaint saying, you know, doctors should get paid for doing nothing. This is a, a call to action to say, let nurses, let doctors take care of patients, assume the best and let the documentation rules support their work so that they can look at a patient's eyes and not at a computer while the patient's in the room. So I, a concept that you see in educational testing actually, where instead of punitively asking people to document, we identify the outliers who are up to no good from a testing standpoint by looking at results and statistically comparing. Could we do the same thing in healthcare and say, allow clinicians to actually document, but we can see, we can see the outliers from a, a medication standpoint. They're completely off the spectrum. Surely that's the better way. I couldn't, so, so the answer is yes. And I think that in the truth of the matter is the, the, there, the answer is yes to say there must be a better way. Whether or not we adopt learnings from education, whether or not we adopt learnings from the financial industry, whether or not we adopt learnings from, from air force quality and safety or air traffic control, the answer is all of the above. Medicine should not live isolated in an island and be forced to reinvent the wheel constantly. But this concept of documentation driving how much you make and how good you are is one that I don't know anybody that would think that's a right use of a provider's time. I think the right use of a provider's time is to improve the health of the people around them, to improve the health of the community. And it's the right challenge for healthcare administrators to figure out how can someone else do that. But outside forces are making those rules on who's allowed to write those notes and, and do that documentation. Those outside forces, which in this case are the government, make it incredibly hard for the providers to look their patients in the eye. And, you know, all I want is for our bedside nurses to be at the bedside our doctors to be looking at their patient's eyes, not pivoted backwards doing something on an electronic medical record to make sure that they get credit for the work that they're doing. I think I would start with that as the, the, the sort of overall concept. It's achievable. We need to get our clinicians back to the bedside, which is where they all want. Do you think we can do it before we lose huge numbers. And we, I feel like we've lost a, a tremendous number of our clinical Dr. colleagues. Nick, we've already lost huge numbers of people. So we have a crisis in labor in this country in healthcare providers at all levels and medical assistance and nursing and now in many, many specialties in healthcare. And the reality is it's already happened. We have a higher rate of people retiring out of healthcare jobs and are graduating in healthcare jobs. And yet we're still making it harder for those once you come into healthcare in a variety of ways. So that will lead to uh, necessity to make a change. And so we haven't made the change for now in this country because we haven't been, we haven't recognized a level of brokenness we're at. And I believe, and many other people in healthcare believe this is not sustainable. There's a give here that will take in that give when we get to a point where there's too much burnout. No one else is coming in as a country will make the changes that we need to make. So the next necessity is here. We have to make that change. And that change is inevitable. 
I take that as a positive sign, and I hope we'll see that. Omar, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. The pandemic created a more coherent and unified approach to healthcare, with most facilities and clinical staff wanting to be part of a greater healthcare system, all pulling in the same direction. There is no returning to the prior state. Our healthcare heroes all stepped up and rose to the task of delivering care in extraordinarily difficult times. We are on a cruise ship in a canal. There is no turning. Perhaps, like the ever given, we have become stuck in the shallows, but directionally we continue towards a better, more integrated and agile system that trusts our clinical staff to do the right things. Because if we don't, we stand to lose even more staff than we already have. Reversing the flow of qualified clinical staff is the priority for our society. We cannot take care of every single person in our society if we don't set our ideals together and agree on the basic principles and reverse the burden of the administrative overhead and documentation. Your better pill to swallow starts by setting the North Star for our combined vision of what we expect from our healthcare system and the services it provides and how we go about delivering that to everyone. Remove the administrative burden, satisfying the legislative requirements with alternatives, including the use of technology that returns the clinicians back to the bedside, the place they want to be and the patients want them to be. Thanks for joining me, your host, Dr. Nick, on this week's edition of Healthcare Upside Down. Until next week, keep solving the business of healthcare as if your life depended on it, as one day soon, it will. That's all the time we have for today. You can find all of our episodes on your favorite listening platform by searching for Healthcare Now Radio. Also, check out our blog at ecgmc.com hud for summaries and commentary from each episode. Follow our show's social hashtag, HCUpsideDown, and join us each week as we work to solve the business of healthcare for everyone.